everyone, and welcome to another Bible study here at One Love Live at Love Walk, and I am your host, Lila Winston. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to today's Bible study. I pray that you are well. I pray that God is really blessing in your life. As you know, we come together to read in the Word of God so that we can practically apply the Word of God. We study it and practically apply it, and also so that we can discover the purpose of our lives, and then, of course, to enact that purpose in the earth as God wills. And so I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've been well. I hope you've been continuing to study in the Word and, of course, to grow in the Spirit. And so today, we're going to do a very interesting Bible study. Um, you know, we have been talking about some of the ways in which we practically apply, you know, the word of God. And I want us to uh, turn a little bit toward uh, an internal process that has an external sort of exhibition. And I think this is something that we really need to have conversations about as believers, because I think sometimes this gets confused and it can go, you know, it can skew to the left or it can skew to the right a little bit too much. And I think what God really wants from us is this kind of balance in him in understanding who he is and in understanding who we are. And I think that the more that we understand who we are and who he is, then the better it becomes that we're able to kind of strike this balance. So don't feel bad if you're, you know, you've skewed a little bit to the right or you skewed a little bit to the left, because if we're all honest, we've all been on one of those spectrums, depending on maybe even your theological school that you came from. But the point is, is that we're not trying to be on one theological camp or the other. We're trying to be on God's camp. Yeah, I don't know how to say that. Like a lot of people say God is on my side. I like to say I'm on God's side because I understand that my side, he's not really, well, I'm not saying he's not on my side, but the truth of the matter is, is that we're trying to actually get back on his side, the kingdom of heaven, right? So I want us to, uh, if you will, grab your Bible. We're going to read in Hebrews chapter nine, verse eight and nine. That's Hebrews chapter nine, verse eight and nine. So grab your Bible. This is our anger text and I'll get started. It says the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And I really want to underline that part as pertaining to the conscience because it's telling you that these gifts and sacrifices could not make a person um, right, uh, perfect, I'm sorry, pertaining to the conscience. And I think this is a really important part of how we sort of process things as we move along as believers, you know, and, you know, I think that really is a big difference between, you know, people who are believers and people who are not. I remember older Christians used to tell me that when you, you know, do something wrong and you're a believer, um, you feel bad about it. But when you're an unbeliever, you don't, you know what I mean? Like there's this internal knowing especially and and that's why i think speaking about the conscience about the heart about the mind is really very critical i think it's really important to understand what the conscience is and according to the definition it is a person's moral sense of right and wrong and we all technically have a conscience i don't think there's anybody out there in the world who's walking around um who didn't have one right like some people 
obviously something has happened and their conscience has been, you know, destroyed in some kind of way. But most people, even if they don't mind doing bad things, they still know when it's wrong. They still know that that's not a good thing to do. And so the Greek word for conscience, when we're looking at Hebrews, because this is Hebrew, so it's translated from the Greek. Um, the Greek word for conscience is sundiasis. I'm sorry, it's sunidasis. <laughs> sunidasis, okay? And it actually means to know or to see, sort of a knowing. It's an innate discernment or joint knowledge. So your knowledge is connected to something, right? It is connected to knowing what is good and right. And so I think this is an important point of how the Greeks, you know, define it. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand that when we read this scripture, it's literally telling us that uh, this sacrifices that, you know, all of these sacrifices and gifts that men were doing, they really could not make anyone mature. That's really the important part. You couldn't grow like, oh, I've been, sir, I've been, you know, sacrificing bulls and goats and pigeons for 50 years. And so I am strong, stronger and more mature. This is something that could not be achieved. And it's something that we see that can be achieved in the kingdom of heaven, in the new covenant, under the blood of Christ and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is a big pivot from what we used to see to now what is available to us. And it helps us to understand sort of the demarcation between what was going on when people were, you know, sacrificing these, um, you know, animals and gifts and so forth. And so it says as pertaining to the conscience in Hebrews chapter nine, verse nine, which means that this will uh, generally not stop anyone from doing it based on the conscience. It won't stop anyone, uh, you know, it's not actually maturing their conscience in any kind of way, right? To be pricked in their mind not to do it. So like if, I don't know, let's say, um, I don't know, if I killed someone, God forbid, but if I killed someone, then maybe two years later I kill someone else and then I bring a bull and a goat or whatever it is, and the point of the matter I'm making, and I know that's probably not the uh, prescription in the Levitical law, but let's say you did something that was against the Ten Commandments, you would come and bring that, you know, gift, but it really didn't change who you were. Like, again, your conscience might not necessarily lead you to do the right thing, right? And so this is not saying that the new covenant brought a means by where we no longer remember sin. And I think that's really critical because I think a lot of people are struggling with that. You know, they think, well, I've become a Christian, but I still feel bad about stuff I did when I was an unbeliever, or I asked God to forgive me for something that I did when I was a believer, and I still feel these feelings about it. The Bible isn't saying that, you know, when you become a Christian, zoom, all these feelings are going to go away. These are things that through the word of God, you know, you're going to have to work through. That is why I do encourage people to read the word of God and try to practically apply it, but it, because it begins to go deep inside of us and sort of transform, you know, some of the thinking that we have, because you can't forget the stuff that you have done. So it's not going to uh, stop you from, you know, necessarily uh, remembering sin or being regretful about it. And so this text is saying our means to be pricked by our conscience uh, is not necessarily um, engaged or 
or affected by these gifts alone, right? We will prove this uh, in some scriptures ahead. And I really want us to look at 1 Corinthians because I think that um, I think that the writer of 1 Corinthians, uh, particularly in chapter 10, has a really great explanation about the conscience because he's asking us as believers not only to care about our own conscience, you know, he's asking us to care about the conscience of others. Now this goes a step further, right? Because at first we're talking about our own conscience as it pertains to sacrificing gifts and things like that for ourselves, right? And even doing that doesn't really stop, you know, our conscience really have that great effect on our conscience and making it perfect or mature. But now we see the writer of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 literally telling us to think about somebody else's conscience. And I think that is why, and I truly believe this, you might have a different opinion, but I truly believe that the law of love is the highest and most difficult law to actually achieve. Thank God for the Holy Spirit because it's asking us to go beyond what the law actually asked us to do, which was just be concerned about our own conscience. So let's look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul is literally talking about abstaining from foods that are offered to idols for the sake of the conscience of someone else. This is really huge, right? Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27. It says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is said before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And I want you to note that he is not talking about his own conscience, but that of another. That there's this internal knowing of good and evil that it should not, someone else's internal knowing of, of good and evil, evil should not hinder our own freedom. But yet the writer of for us, 1 Corinthians is telling us to be thinking about his conscience, which is just a... It goes even further than what we were first required to do. And this means conscience is that internal knowing. And so for the person who sees you eat, he understands the evil of the idol worship. But you know that there's no power in anything offered to idols. You've been given authority over all evil spirits. So there's really no danger to you. But for the one who knows, the danger is to his conscience because he may start eating foods offered to idols for the idea behind it, the basic premise or the practice that the idol food offered to idols promises. And then this has a bearing on his conscience. Like there are things that I know if I've read in the Bible and I see they're not sins and some people think they're sins. I have a freedom about that. Like I'm like, I could be in the middle of a seance and have no problem. I, you know what I mean? Like these types of things just do not bother me at all. You know, I hear people talk about, oh, you know, that's spooky and there's an evil spirits. And like, I could go into a haunted house or whatever you want to call it. Like there's nothing there right for me. 
Um, because I literally don't believe it. I literally isn't saying I don't believe in spirits, but I say it literally has no effect on me based on my stance in the kingdom of heaven with Christ. So there are instances of the word conscience um, that really sort of tries to help us to understand what we're dealing with in terms of this internal knowing of good and evil, whether it pertains to us or whether it pertains to others, which is that second step that love requires of us. But I want to point something out to you that there are no instances of the word conscience in the Old Testament. And the reason I want to point this out to you is because I want you to understand that we can be talking about the same concept, but using different words. And that's literally what's kind of happening here because the Hebrews aren't talking about this. The Greeks are saying this is a conscience. So the word actually appears in the New Testament 30 times. So that's a lot compared to it never being mentioned in the Old Testament, not even one time. And this is important because we get a better picture of what Paul is talking about when we understand the writer is substituting a Hebrew concept with a Greek one. This concept, it actually goes in lockstep with the Hebrew concept of the heart and mind that is often talked about in the Old Testament. In modern times, we often associate the conscience with the mind, and to some degree, there is that truth there. And, you know, I think that the mind does tell us between right and wrong, but then there is the heart, right? And that is why I always say there is a heart-mind connection if they are not both the same thing, right? And so I think the writer of 1 Timothy really has a great take on it, right? Let's look at what 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 says. He explains it. He says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And so this is the point is that there is an understanding that conscience acts as this internal moral guide, right? It is an internal moral guide, whether we choose to heed it or not, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, it tells us what is right and wrong. And this is an instance in first Timothy in which he speaks of the conscience as being seared or burnt, right? A burnt conscience. So it's, it's something that was once organic and now has been burnt to a crisp, right? And so this is likely going back to that heart-mind connection because we see the word conscience even in the New Testament being used in conjunction with the heart. And we start thinking about what the Old Testament talked about when it talked about a hardened heart, right? In the New Testament, they talk about a burnt conscience. In the Old Testament, they talk about a hardened heart. I want to show you how that there is this great connection that brings it all together. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. I'm going to read it one more time so you get the context here. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here the writer is much more descriptive and we see that it is implied in this scripture that conscience actually belongs to the heart. And note how it says having our hearts sprinkled from an even an evil conscience. This sprinkling is reminiscent of the sanctification and purification of the Levitical priests 
when they would sprinkle the altar with blood or sprinkle, you know, whatever the thing needed to be sanctified with blood. And so it's literally saying the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sprinkling our conscience and purifying it, right? And so that's the idea in terms of that connection with the mind heart, right? So the writer is telling us that it is our hearts that have the conscience so that it tells us the purification of the conscience comes from Christ, his blood. And so when we understand the concept of the heart and the flesh versus the heart of stone, it also underscores the importance of renewing the mind. Because when you understand that there's this connection between the mind and the heart, that there's some sort of uh, connection there, if they are not the same thing, right, on some level, it helps us to be able to understand what it is that we're doing, right, in a more, uh, I guess you could say in a more graphic way, so we understand how that we really do need to transform the mind. And so a great example of the conscience is when Jesus responded to the man who thought, who the men, I'm sorry, who caught that lady who was in adultery, they say they caught her in the very act. It's a great example because he simply appealed to their conscience and not necessarily that their conscience was so good, right? Like they had the temerity to grab this woman caught in the very act and drag her before what was an obvious prophet doing all of these miracles and doing all these wonderful teachings, but they didn't even touch the man who was involved in it, right? So it's really sort of showing us that when he did spoke, because at first he didn't say anything, is that he appealed to their conscience, that internal thing that knows good and bad. And so uh, the men, they really didn't have the conscience to respond, right? Let's look at what it says in John chapter 8, verse 9. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even until the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. That's John chapter eight, verse nine. And so when Jesus said, whichever one of you has no sin, cast the first stone. What it literally says is if there's no sin in you, right? If there's no sin in you, then go ahead, hit, cast, you know, hit her, throw a stone at her. And none of them can do it, could do it because they knew that they did have it right? That internal knowing said, yeah, I know I just did this on Tuesday and that on Thursday, or they just came back from doing something. So their conscience would not allow them to act because they all knew they had sin. And if they had pretended like they wouldn't, they would have negated the whole idea of the Levitical priesthood, right? Because that priesthood was not able to cleanse the conscience. Remember, we read that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. So these men could not have had a cleansed conscience, right? They knew, okay, yeah, that's right, I do that. (laughs) You know, the bad um, thing about that is that they were going to bring her there for her obvious sin, even though they knew they had sin as well. So, right, you know, Jesus Christ, he knew these things. And Jesus was the only one actually in that room that was qualified to launch even one projectile, right? Because he didn't come for that reason. He was completely without sin. And look at what it says in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, because I think this is a point about the heart-mind connection that we overlook. Uh, And and it says it in this uh, translation in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, it says, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Think about that, a conscience 
that is void of offense toward God and men. That sounds a lot like love your neighbor as you love yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and spirit. So now we start understanding why he's saying love God with your mind, right? It is why we understand that we worship God with the mind as well. So the point is that in our daily dealings, we are acting in such a way as to do what is devoid of offense to God and man according to God's laws or ways. This is the goal. This is the assignment. Remember, it is always according to God's ways because we know that the Lord's word is offensive to unbelievers. It's offensive to sin. So our criterion is not based on the changing standards of men, but the unchanging will and word and way of God. So the conscience is also the flip side of love, right? It's just like we just said when he said a conscience devoid you know, of offense toward God and man, we could quote the very same, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, uh, and spirit. So we see that the conscience is the part of our heart that knows right and wrong. And the sacrifice of sheep and pigeon could not cleanse and purify our conscience toward God. Because one thing I have noted about sin that I have known since even before I was a believer, you know, maybe it's because I grew up in a religious household. And the thing that I've always known is that the thing about it is, is that when it comes to sin, right, that with sin, the more you do it, the easier it becomes, right? It's like a habit, like a drug. Sin keeps growing so that it produces more death. And I've always known this. I don't even remember if somebody told me this, if I can just be truly honest with you, or whether it was just something I observed when I was a child. Like as a child, I was extremely like, I don't know, they called me precocious because I would pick up on things going on between adults. And I would note, hmm, it seems to me that the more that a person does a particular thing that isn't good, the better they get at it. And sometimes the worse they get at it, right? Like sin keeps growing, right? It keeps getting bigger. So little white lies turn into big lies. They turn into lies to family and friends. They turn into lies to business partners and associates. They turn into lies to oneself and then lies to God. And this is the continual genesis and growth of sin. It grows. It doesn't, it grows from you know, peeking, you know, at girls in the locker room to rape. The point is that sin has a life cycle that includes the heart and mind or the conscience. Remember, the mind is this fertile place that grows things. Have you ever, you know, had someone do something that was slightly nasty and you thought, oh, that was nasty and you went on about your business or that was rude or whatever, but then you thought about it again and you kept thinking about it before you know you were enraged? The mind has the capacity to increase these things, right? To multiply them. We have to never forget the multiplying capacity of the spirit, of being a human. You are built in the image of God. So there's this multiplying capacity of whatever it is, not just good, right? Because remember we read that the Bible says, be careful what you hear, not just that you hear. Now, I want you to notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 12, that it speaks of the joy of their pure conscience being a testimony of their behavior and life and manner 
of edification. And we have to see this because of what it's literally saying about these people. So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. So it's saying the conscience is an organ of memory for the sin we have committed, but it also offers a testimony of the life we have lived by the grace of God, right? It's offering a testimony of the good stuff too. You can't just say if the uh, conscience also is cognizant of sin or cognizant of bad, it is also cognizant of good, right? actively choosing now to do what is right among believers and unbelievers. Without conscience, it is futile to appeal to any righteousness in a man. He has no conscience. His heart is stoned and his conscience is burned to a crisp. The Bible teaches us such men are suddenly destroyed as we see in Psalms chapter 95 and 8. And that is why having a soft heart, having a conscience that, you know, works or not seared or burnt is so important. Let's look at Psalms chapter 95 verse 8. It says, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Think about what it's saying. The Hebrews hardened their heart, and so God did not allow that generation to enter into the promised land. Again, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and his land and his army was eventually broken. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had hard hearts. It's why both Christ and John the Baptist had a particular disdain for those Pharisees. It is why when they came to gatherings that were organized by Jesus or John the Baptist, that both often chided them. These men knew the truth, but did not want to follow it nor allow others to do so. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. I'm sorry, 23, uh, verse 23 to 25. It says, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. So this is the point is that if you think about a cup, right? Like it's filthy, like completely filthy, but you just wash the outside of it. It doesn't mean that the cup isn't still filthy. And maybe you can't see that the inside of the cup is dirty, And that's what people play on. That's what the Pharisees played on. I look good, don't I? Don't I look like I'm doing the right thing? But it is what is within you that matters. That is why the conscience and the heart play such a huge role in the life of a believer, right? Again, there is the word again, hypocrisy that we saw and that we have studied earlier. Hypocrisy is also a sign of a hard heart. And we see this when Jesus Christ heals the man with a withered hand, right? Like, When God is doing these things, he sees a full display of hypocrisy. Let's look at what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. It says, And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart, he said unto the men, Stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it out. 
and his hand was restored whole as the other. That's Mark chapter three, verse five. A hard heart is one that has no compassion, no law, and no love. You see, lawlessness results in a lack of love as we see in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. I want you to notice Jesus does not appeal to the hard-hearted. Those who's hardened to his word or commands are to be entirely abandoned by believers, particularly when offered the gospel. The Bible says, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. And I just want to say as an aside, you know, to believers and also to you who may be uh, gifted with evangelism, this whole idea of continually coming to someone to present the gospel who does not want to hear it is actually unbiblical. And I'm sorry to say that, but I think we have to really look at what's in the canon to understand what is being said. Jesus wasn't coming to the synagogue to talk to the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had the law. They knew what was in it and chose not to do it and rejected it immediately after reading it and knowing it. And after he spoke, he was coming for the people that were there. So it's important to understand that as a believer, you know, who is trying to fulfill the great commission, you want to do it right. You have a big heart. You want people to accept Christ. But if they reject you truly, you're supposed to just leave that alone, right? Like, okay, cool. And go on about your merry way. Yes. That doesn't mean that they're not going to become a Christian. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But what it means is you've done your part, right? It's, it's, it's an appeal is fine. But after that, move on. That's truly biblical. Now I want us to look at, um, a hard heart and a burnt conscience in Romans chapter two. It says, but after thy hardness and unpenitent heart treasured up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's Romans two and five. So we learn that a hard and unrepentant heart refuses to turn. And that's essentially what evangelism is about, is getting people to turn to the Most High God, getting people to turn to the kingdom. That's what the Great Commission is about, telling people about the kingdom of God so that they can repent, which is to turn, which is to change their way of thinking. And so we understand that an unrepentant, a hard heart, that's something that God has to work on. We can only throw out seeds, right? It doesn't say the sower threw seeds on hard ground. He looked, he saw it didn't grow. He came back and threw more seeds on it. He threw more seeds on it. It doesn't say that. He just tossed his seeds and he kept going. And I want you to understand that that can be a hard thing, especially when you love people, especially when you want to see people um, saved, but you have to follow what the Bible says. And the reason we do that is because it allows someone else to come along. It allows God to work in their life. Maybe their heart is hard and they just need the ground to be broken up a little bit by what they might experience in life. We don't know the whole story, but it's important for us to be sensitive to know how God wants us to deliver the word of God, right? And this is really an important part because people often do get accustomed to doing evil. And so wrath is stored up for when the time comes for God to judge them. That is why leave a good message. Know the word. When you evangelize, know it. When you speak it, know it. Tell them exactly how it is. Don't try and sugarcoat it. There are a lot of people who try to buddy-buddy up to people and, you know, sort of give it to them in a soft way. And I'm not saying that you should say you're going to hell. (laughs) 
you know, fire and brimstone. But you do have to be completely honest with people. You have to give them the true and real word so that they can make a choice. Because when you get, don't give people the actual truth, they can't. That's the word. If it's modified and even a little bit, they can't use it. It can't be useful for them to be converted and to grow. So I just want to encourage you. Don't think judgment comes after this life only. It also comes in this life too. And so you want to warn people, you know, about their actions, about what they're doing. But after that, let it go. If they refuse you, just let it go. You have done your part and God is happy with that, right? He's not asking you to keep coming back. He's just asking you to tell them and keep going. And so the heart is a vital place. When we really think about these scriptures, when we think about Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, we see how important the heart is because it is the seat of the conscience. It is the place where a man makes his choices to turn or not. We see why it's so important for us as believers even to continue to renew the mind. The heart is a vital place. And in the Greek concept, we see it is the house of the conscience. So we understand the importance in its influence of our behavior as well as our memory of sin. And so if you're struggling with memories of sin, I just want to tell you that you have the choice to think about what you want. You have the power to think about what it is that you want. And that is what you want to grab hold of. The Bible says to take every thought captive. Captive. You know what it's like to be caught captive? You are locked up somewhere. You're chained up, right? You're grabbed. So what? that's what the Bible is saying. And I want to encourage you, whatever thought it may be. And I think a lot of people live in depression because they are captive by the bad things that they've done. If you can change your thought, change it. If you can change something that you've done wrong and write it, that helps too. Go out there and do that. Free yourself. Change your thoughts. And when you do that, understand that you have the power to do that as a believer. So I want to thank you so much for uh, tuning in. This is about your heart. This is about your head. This is about your conscience. So I want to thank you. Guys, have a beautiful and blessed day. Bye. you for being a part of the one love live love walk bible study i appreciate you but perhaps you've stumbled onto this bible study and you're not yet become a believer i want to encourage you to take the time to accept the lord christ into your life i want you to know that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that the lord jesus is lord that you will be saved If you can go ahead with me, close your eyes and pray. Oh Lord, I pray right now that you would forgive me of my sins. I will repent of my sins right now. That is, I will turn away from all the sins that I have done from before until now. And I want to seek to follow you. Lord, open my eyes and my heart to your truth. I accept you into my heart as my Lord and Savior. And I accept the Holy Spirit as the comforter and guide in my life. Continue to lead me. And I thank you so much for hearing my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you prayed that prayer, then you are now a believer. 
and I want you to believe in your heart. And if you have a chance, reach out to me and let me know that you receive the Lord. There's ways that you can contact me if you look in the description of this uh, Bible study. And I look forward to hearing from you and helping you on your love walk. Don't forget to sign up for our devotional emails so that you can be encouraged in your faith and grow. God bless you.